How do you experience joy? You think about the presence or the absence of joy in your life, how would you describe it? What would you compare it with? I think how we answer these kind of questions can tell us a lot about our relationship with joy. I am endlessly fascinated with hummingbirds. Growing up in Atlanta, I never saw hummingbirds in everyday life, except when I visited my grandparents in the mountains of North Carolina. They had a house uh, pretty high up on a mountain, and they had a hummingbird feeder, and I remember what a treat it was to get to see these wonderful little kind of magical birds like fairies fly in and fly out. Well, since moving to Charlotte, I have been delighted to discover that I actually can see hummingbirds in my yard. But a few weeks ago, I got a real treat. Paisley and I were in the mountains of North Carolina, and the place we were staying had two different hummingbird feeders, and these little hummingbirds were putting on a show. I mean, they were coming and going, constant flow of them. Well, after enjoying them for a little while, I got an idea. If you have a smartphone, uh, you may have discovered that it has um, this cool feature where it can record things in slow motion. And so I thought, wait a minute, this could could work here. Because hummingbirds, they make that buzzing sound because their wings are flapping incredibly fast. I looked it up, and some um, species of them, they, they actually flap 50 times per second. And they also are flying very fast. That's why they zip in, they zip out. You can hardly see them. So I thought, well, if I get the the slow-mo in my camera and I could somehow capture it, then I could could slow it down and I could look at it. I could understand it. And so I did. And I got my thing and I held real still and I was ready. And sure enough, one came and I captured it. The surprising thing was when I went back and looked at the video in slow motion, it was still incredibly fast. The wings were still blurry. That's how fast they were going. And then one of our friends suggested that um, if we got someone in the background waving their arms, then you could see the contrast between the hummingbird and the other person. And so we did that, and it kind of worked, except the person scared the hummingbird away. (laughs) Well, for me, joy is like a hummingbird. I very much enjoy the presence of joy when it comes around. It lifts my countenance, it excites me, it fascinates me, it engages me. It's connected with sweet memories from my past. If I could, I would break out the slow motion camera and I would record joy just to capture it, just to figure out how it works. But like a hummingbird, joy for me tends to zip in and out of my life. I don't have control over it. It's not predictable. It's beautiful, it's mysterious, but it's skittish. Easily disturbed. Sometimes, as soon as I notice it and begin to enjoy it, it's gone again. I've gone long seasons without experiencing a whole lot of joy. I've never been clinically depressed. I've never been unable to function in daily life, but I've known seasons where hope and joy and just energy for life was in short supply. It was like the hummingbird just wasn't coming around at all for a while. Some of you here today, I would imagine, have had it far worse than that. Maybe you have been clinically depressed. Maybe you have been or are currently on medication to help. Some of you have experienced debilitating depression or you have walked with someone in that place. 
But I think all of us, even if we're generally a pretty upbeat person, we know the experience of the absence of joy. And so I think wherever we are on the spectrum, whether a pretty happy person or suffering from depression, we would all agree that whatever joy is, we'd like more of it, please. For the next few weeks, we're going to talk about joy. If you remember back to the beginning of the summer, we set out to answer two questions, two very important questions, I believe. The first was, how do we deal well with pain in life? It was a timely question we asked, wasn't it? Because as a nation, we entered into and are still in a very intense season of pain. How do we deal well with pain in life? And then the second question, which we'll now embark on, is how do we pursue joy? So the pain question we asked of the Psalms back in June, and what they taught us was this practice of lament. Honestly, bringing our pain before God is the healthiest thing that we can do with it. Lament is like this lifeline when we're hurting. It's like the the Coast Guard helicopter that flies over a person who's drowning and the divers are, are diving down into the waters. It's amazing that they do that. Jesus comes down into the pain. He doesn't yell at us from the top of the helicopter. He gets down in it with us and then he puts us in the basket and he raises us back up out of the tumult, out of the overwhelming experience that we were in. That's the kind of thing happening in lament, and it's critical that we know how to do it, and it's critical that the church can model it for the world right now. Because if we don't deal well with our pain, we'll deal deal with it somehow, in violence, in anger, in hasty judgment, and all these sort of things. And so we can stop, and we can bring our pain to God, and that is a good way to deal with it. The long-term goal, however, is not to live in lament. God wants us to get back to land, as it were, and live lives of joy. And when we look at the New Testament, the picture we get of the Christian life is one of pretty consistent and pretty amazing joy. The gospel passage I just read, John 17, Jesus prays that his disciples might have his joy fulfilled in themselves. And it's interesting to note because he talks a lot, Jesus does, about joy in John chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, what we call the um, sort of the, the upper room, a dialogue of Jesus. It's interesting that the closer he gets to the cross, the more he speaks about joy. Hold on to that. That's saying something. So Jesus talks about joy. Paul in his letters, especially Philippians, that's known as the epistle of joy, he talks about it. Galatians, he, he tells us that joy is this, this outworking, this fruit of the Spirit. James goes so far as to tell us to count our trials as joy, as pure joy, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because what God is doing in that. Peter tells us to rejoice with joy. John, in his letters, speaks about joy being completed. In Jude, which Eric preached through the last few weeks, it concludes with this wonderful benediction, sort of this forward-looking joy of us being presented before the glory of God with great joy. And so the picture we get of the Christian life from the New Testament is one of persistent, abiding, deep joy. That's God's design for life lived in him. The interesting thing about joy, as, as God understands it, is that it's not the opposite of lament. 
I would suggest that joy is the fruit of lament. Or it's really the fruit of life lived deeply in Christ. Whether that's a happy time, whether that's a sad time, whether that's just sort of an in-between time, joy is that fruit coming out of us. So if we consider the New Testament, if we consider what it tells us about joy and passage after passage, the hummingbird is not a very good illustration. It may describe our inconsistent relationship to joy, but it's not an accurate picture of what God intends for his people. About five years ago, a friend of mine began to challenge my perception of joy and teach me about biblical joy. This friend is a single woman who is a missionary in Muslim North Africa. She has been there for quite some time, and she has known some serious challenges. She read an article I wrote where I compared joy to a hummingbird, and she began to dialogue with me about it. She wrote in this email, I want to read part of it to you. She says, although I understand your hummingbird analogy, joy can seem quite fleeting and ephemeral. I think I'd fundamentally disagree with it on some levels. Don't you love getting email like that? Or maybe I should say it's all too often that joy is like a hummingbird in our lives that quickly flits away before we've hardly even seen it, but that God desires to plant joy deep within the very core of our being. And then she goes on to describe some things from her life about a dark valley that she walked through on the mission field and how God showed up and how that provided this foundation for joy. She continues and she talks about how she was learning that joy wasn't just a noun, but that it was a verb. It was something we did. It was a choice even. And in her email, she quoted a bishop from South Carolina, a man named Mark Lawrence. Some of you know him. And I want to read you also what Bishop Lawrence wrote in this article. Actually, I think it was a speech he gave. He says, I was hiking one day on Mount Desert Island in Maine. I would imagine that's an easy place to feel joy. When I came across a lady slipper on the side of the trail, I knelt down to study it. I thought, what a beautifully formed wildflower. It brought me joy. And when I got up to hike, there was a new lilt in my step. But it was a serendipitous happenstance joy. Too many Christians seem to think that this is how our joy should be, just something we come across as we go through life. But Christian joy is a cultivated flower, planted, nurtured, and watered in cooperation with God's grace. Friends, we're going to have hummingbird wildflower experiences in life, and they're wonderful. Those can be joy. But I don't think those are the the normal experience that the New Testament is talking about. I like to think about those little moments as these sort of of love invitations from new creation, from from the age to come, where, where Jesus is beginning to invoke our longing for how we will be with him. It is coming one day, and yet in this life, God wants to provide for us a more consistent experience of joy as part of our normal walk with him. He doesn't want it to be occasional. He doesn't want us to live these sad, discouraged lives. But the joy that he's providing is something we're meant to cultivate in cooperation with him. It's something that we can nurture. 
It's something that we even have to discipline ourselves in a way and work at in cooperation with his grace. So for the next few weeks, we're going to turn to the Psalms again. And this time we're going to ask them about joy. If you haven't figured it out by now, the Psalms are an incredible resource because they have the height of human experience. And they also have the depth of despair and everything in between. So today we're going to look at Psalm 30. Because Psalm 30 shows us one approach to cultivating joy. And it also shows us how not to try to cultivate joy by showing us this false source that we should avoid. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Psalm 30. And I actually want to start with the false source that we should avoid, and then we'll look at this good practice of cultivating it. Well, on the whole, Psalm 30 is pretty positive, but there's this moment right in the middle um, where the psalmist is distraught, and the reason he is distraught is because he has put his joy in the wrong place. So look at verse 6, if you have your Bibles. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, you can translate that word prosperity ease, in my prosperity, in my ease, I said, I shall never be moved. Right here in that one sentence, he has described virtually how every human being understands joy and happiness. Let me put it in a slightly different way. Get my circumstances right, and I'm happy. Get my circumstances right, whatever those are for you, and I'm happy. Prosperity, ease, could be the right job, the right spouse, the right family, the right church, the right health, whatever. You get it right, I'm happy. Fill my life with hummingbirds and wildflowers and I will experience joy. Notice also in that verse six how focused it is around himself. As for me, I said in my prosperity, my my prosperity, I shall never be moved. God does not show up in verse six. Has a very similar feel to the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, if you know that parable. This man had plentiful crops. He decided, what do I do with all this? Well, great, I'll build bigger barns. I'll store it all up. And then he says these words to himself, which really feel like a prayer to himself. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And as that parable unfolds, the false source of joy is exposed when God says to him, you fool, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. Friends, sometimes our circumstances are favorable, sometimes they're not, but our present circumstances are a terrible source of joy. And in verse seven, the psalmist comes to realize this. By your favor, O Lord, You made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. It wasn't my prosperity. It wasn't my ease. It was the Lord's favor that made my mountain stand strong. That's what he comes to realize. So you have this contrast between six, my prosperity, where most people are building their source of joy, and verse seven, your favor. That's the contrast between true and false joy. And then he goes on to to, to say something a little bit surprising about God, maybe a bit disturbing to us. He said, you hid your face, I was dismayed. 
that God sort of intentionally pulled back from the person so that he would experience this absence of God or absence of positive circumstances. But it taught him the lesson, didn't it? He realizes that his ease, his prosperity wasn't going to go on very long. He realizes that apart from God, he would fall apart. Sometimes we don't even realize who's holding us up until he pulls his hand out lovingly just to let us fall, to realize how important he is. God never removes his favor, his actual favor, his love, his care for us, but he certainly will pull his hand back at times, allow us to experience some things, allow us to experience even uh, his absence in a way that we might more deeply cultivate the right source of joy. 1990, I remember where I was in my front yard playing and my mom and my dad drove in the driveway and I could see through the car window my mom was crying and we came to discover that she had breast cancer. And I, th- I think, as I recall, it was a little further along and it was going to take a lot of treatment and uh, she went through that. And looking back and I remember seeing her faith in Christ. We were churchgoers, they believed in God, you know, but her faith, something happened to it. Something more joyful came out, something more passionate came out on the other side of that cancer. And, and I've always known that. She was in town a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about that, but then she told me this story that, that I didn't ever know, I'd never heard it before. Right after her, her surgery with cancer and, and she was really scared going into it and God met her in this profound way and really removed fear. After that had happened, she and my dad were up North Carolina mountains again. There's something about the North Carolina mountains. They were on the Blue Ridge Parkway and she said to me that she remembered thanking God for the cancer, thanking God for how he had met her, that, that she, that she, he cared about her, that he would come into her life and meet her. What kind of crazy person would thank God for cancer? Unless, through that experience, you had discovered this treasure, this abiding well, this source of deep and abiding joy. God pulls back the circumstances one time to remind us that it's not the circumstances that give us our joy. So that's the false source But looking at verses 1 through 5, we see the positive model, how the psalmist will teach us how we can cultivate it. He begins in verse 1 by saying, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And he goes on and he describes God's past faithfulness. He's looking back to these experiences of what God has done to rescue him or to rescue the nation of Israel. And the key, this is what begins to cultivate joy. Listen to some of what he says, uh, verses 2 and 3. You have healed me. You have brought me up from Sheol, which is the land of the dead. You have restored me to life. And then um, he goes on later in verse 11 and he says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. He's looking back. He's recounting these experiences of how God was faithful. We can see pretty clearly, we can make an educated guess that he lamented well 
while he was in these places, that the nation of Israel would, would pour out their lament before God, but God had answered, God had healed, God had restored. And so then that spills over, and you have to see this in the text, it spills over one through three into verse four, where he calls for joyful praise from God's people. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. It's a call to worship, but it's not coming out of nowhere. The context for it is verses one through three, the way God has been faithful in the past. Joy takes root in the fertile soil of remembering God's faithfulness. That's the whole sermon, friends. Write that one down. (laughs) Joy takes root in the fertile soil of remembering God's faithfulness. That's easy to say, isn't it? It's harder to do. What happens in our lives, we we watch uh, the soil of our hearts, of our lives, um, dry up, and we we can see joy kind of wilt on the vine. And the reason this happens to us is because we are a people who get consumed in moments. We can easily lose our perspective. And so that's what the psalmist will speak into in verse 5. Great verse, you've probably heard it before. He says, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. See, joy is a result of perspective. It's directly related to what we're focused on. And so often we get focused in the moment, and the moment is all we can see. And the psalmist equates his moment with God's anger probably God's judgment. It could have been related to the Babylonian exile, this major um, catastrophe thing in, in the life of Israel where they experienced God's anger and judgment. So that may have been what he was describing. For us, it's probably something else, some challenging circumstance in our life, something that persists and persists. And in the moment, it's all we can see. In the moment, it can, it can steal our joy. In the moment, it can, can have that, that moisture-sucking effect from the soil of our lives where we begin to feel that we wilt. But the psalmist comes in and he speaks into our lives and he says, listen, here's the thing about moments. They're momentary. They don't last forever. What does last forever is the favor of God. Remember the contrast in verses six and seven we had our prosperity our ease whatever our circumstances and then we had the favor of God the favor of God is the thing that will endure it's been with us in the past it's with us in the present it will be with us in the future we have it right now in verse five he goes on and he talks about the night it's hard to have much perspective in the night because there's not a whole lot of light. It's hard to see anything else except what's right in front of us. And so if, if weeping is in front of us, then that what feels like it's going to just tarry. It's going to stay for the night. It's not going to stop. Or whatever it is that's with us in the night and those dark times in life feels like it won't go away. Because nights, whether actual or metaphorical, just last a long time. Maybe that's where you are today. You, you come in here this morning, but you feel like you're stuck in a night. Well, the psalmist offers us perspective. He says, nights don't last forever. 
Night always gives way to morning. Always gives way to morning, friends. One of my favorite writers uh, recently wrote this song, and I think it expresses this very theme. His name is Andrew Peterson. He writes this, I've been waiting for the sun to come blazing up out of the night like a bullet from a gun till every shadow is scattered, every dragon's on the run. Oh, I believe, I believe the light is gonna come and this is the dark, this is the dark before the dawn. I've been waiting for some peace to come raining down out of the heavens on these war-torn fields. All creation is aching for the sons of God to be revealed. Oh, I believe, I believe that the victory is sealed. The serpent struck, but it was crushed beneath his heel. So I'm waiting for the king to come galloping out of the clouds while the angel armies sing. He's gonna gather his people in the shadow of his wings and I'm gonna raise my voice with the song of the redeemed because all this darkness is a small and passing thing. Amen? So how do we get perspective? When we're in the moment, it's hard to see, how do we get perspective? We look back on what God has done. We look back at his faithfulness. Joy takes root in the fertile soil of remembering. And I want to suggest two ways that we can do this, two kind of practical ways we could press this down into our lives. First is that we do it with our personal stories. Whether you've known the Lord for a day, you've known him for 50 years, Hopefully you have some material where you can look back in your life and say, God was faithful. You can remember times where he healed you, where he rescued you, where he forgave you, where he provided for you. You could remember, maybe you can still feel the pits that you found yourself in at some point in the past and and how God drew you up out of the pit. Maybe you can remember the, the long nights that wouldn't seem to end that did end because the dawn always comes. Sometimes uh, in our personal stories, if we're stuck in a moment, it is hard to remember. It's hard to bring those things to mind. And so we need tangible reminders of it. And this is where an Ebenezer can be very helpful. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7, by the Lord's help, the Israelites defeated the Philistines, one of their arch enemies. And after that victory, the, the prophet Samuel took a stone and he set it up as a reminder saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. And he called the stone Ebenezer, which just means stone of help. It's helpful in our lives to be able to point to something tangible, something physical as a reminder of God's faithfulness. These are the Ebenezers that we can build in our lives. Perhaps it's the the church building that you nurtured your faith some years ago and you could go back to it and see it, hang a picture on your wall, whatever it is. Perhaps it's a, a Bible that was passed down in your family or from a mentor in the faith. Maybe it's a child that that God gave you or a spouse that God gave you that, that you weren't expecting to, but it was a sign of his faithfulness. Maybe it's a, a trip you took, maybe a pilgrimage of some sort. Last summer, our entire sabbatical was in Ebenezer. It was a reminder that thus far in this first seven years of pastoral ministry, God has been faithful. Paisley has a particular candle that she lights when she needs to remember in a very physical way, the Lord is faithful. And then some people actually take rocks and they build altars and they set up statues as a reminder that God did something and they mark it. 
So if you don't have things in like this in your life, start creating them. It could be something as small as a picture or a candle or a trip or whatever, but create Ebenezer's in your life so that when you're in a moment, you can say, yeah, but that. Yeah, but that and that and that and that. And you have a list of them that you can see and remember God is faithful. As you do this, though, remember the point of an Ebenezer is not nostalgia. It's not just to wish that things were now the way they were back then. That actually can lead us into despair or to bitterness. The point of an Ebenezer is to remember God and to remember his past faithfulness. And that becomes the the soil-enriching experience in the present and gives us hope for the future. So that's one way we can cultivate joy, looking back at our personal stories using Ebenezer's. The second way is to look back at Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate Ebenezer. He is the rock of ages. He is the stone that the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone. And so we look back at the incarnation. It's an astounding fact. We celebrate it every year at Advent. It's an astounding fact that, that God became a person, that he entered humanity, that he entered our mess, that he entered our pain, that we might be lifted up. We look back at his birth, his incarnation. We look back at his life and his teaching and his healings. We look back at his saving death, his glorious resurrection, his ascension into the right hand of God where he's ruling and reigning and he's high priest for all of us. As we do that, as we cultivate that experience in our lives of looking back at Jesus, we have fertile soil for joy. And so that's why we structure our worship the way we do at King of Kings and other Anglican churches. We have all these different ways that we're looking back at him. We use the church calendar so that every year from Advent through Pentecost, we're not only just looking at, we're actually rehearsing Jesus' life. We're going through all these experiences year after year. We're internalizing it. Then every Sunday after the sermon, we'll do it in just a moment, we say the Nicene Creed which is really a summary of what Christians believe, but I think you can also say it's a summary of God's faithfulness. And I encourage you, when you say it, don't just say it, confess it. It's not just something rote that we do, friends. It's a way to point to, to mark God's faithfulness. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the eternally begotten of the Father. That's who he is. And then what did he do? For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. We look back at Jesus, at what he did in history, and we cultivate joy. And then every Sunday, we celebrate the sacred meal, which Jesus gave us, the Lord's Supper. With this meal, we are literally obeying the command, do this in remembrance of me. And every time we come to the table, it's an Ebenezer. It's a tangible, tasty reminder that God loves us, that he has provided for us, that he has saved us. I don't know what it is about that table. But Sunday by Sunday, even if I'm in a down place, after I come with you all, not just a personalized experience, it's incredibly personal, it is, but it's also corporate, And coming together as the people of God, I find my spirit strangely warmed. And joy grew somehow in that act. 
So these are some corporate ways we do it in worship. We also need to, to do it in our personal lives, in our personal spiritual disciplines, whether that's prayer, and Bible study, fellowship with friends. We can help remind each other of God's past faithfulness. We need to cultivate the habit of, of doing it all throughout the day. So as you go through your day, you'll, you'll begin to notice that there'll be times where you're drifting from joy, kind of like you notice in the 95-degree heat that your tomato plant is wilting, and you're like, oh, I should put some water on that. We do that with our souls. We say, man, my soul's kind of drifting today from its anchor in joy, and then you can water it by saying, yeah, but God's been faithful, hasn't he? And God will be faithful, and you bring specific things to mind. I tried that this week. I was... Um, waiting in a restaurant, just waiting for someone to come. And there was a couple of circumstances I was dwelling on and weren't particularly positive, And I could feel my, my soul begin to drift. And I said, no, 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 no. And I began to just mark God's faithfulness and remember that he was faithful and remember that regardless of what happened here, and I don't know how it's gonna happen. And it's probably not gonna play out the way I think or maybe the way I want to play out, but regardless of what happens, God is faithful. And as I did that, it had an effect. I could actually feel that the tension in my soul loosening and seeds of joy being planted. Before I close in prayer, I just want to circle back and speak a word to those who are suffering with depression or who are walking with someone. Uh, this discipline of cultivating joy by looking back, uh, it's biblical. And it may be part of what God uses to bring you back into a place of joy. But there's a chemical part of depression as well. There's an, there's an illness involved. And a lot of it is beyond our control. And we need therapy and we need intervention and we need sometimes medication to treat that. And so I, what I don't want you to hear is try harder. This depression is your fault and you can fix it somehow. Because that's not going to be helpful for you. Yes, God may use this discipline, looking back and remembering his faithfulness as part of his overall treatment of you to, to lift you back up. You may need to use it to supplement your clinical treatment, your, your medication, because we're holistic creatures and we're psychological and spiritual and emotional and physical. All of this comes together. But don't take on the burden of it's your fault and you can just fix yourself by a quick little spiritual fix. It's going to be a journey. If you are experiencing a, a large absence of joy, whether or not you use the word depression for that, but a consistent and ongoing absence of joy, and you're not talking to anyone and you're not getting some help, get some help. Come talk to, to me, to Eric, to someone. We can, we can set you up with the right kind of help. Sometimes that might be, have you talked to your doctor about it? Sometimes it might be you need to go see a counselor and if the finances of counseling is, is a burden, we have some money set aside as a church to help with that because I believe this is a critically important. But don't walk alone and don't be ashamed of it. Get some help because the Lord has joy as a gift that he wants to cultivate and plant in us. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that we can ask for joy and that you will give us joy. And so as a people, we ask for it right now. That you would so grow and plant and water and nourish the seeds of joy in our heart.
that as a people in our worship, as a people as we scatter out across the city, we may be marked by our joy. Our participation is required, Lord, but it's also a very organic process by which this grows in us, and we know that it is impossible without your Holy Spirit because it's a fruit. And so would you gently remind us this week as we walk through the ups and the downs and the circumstances changing what it means to grow in joy. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.